AVXL episode 139 was recorded on May 13th, 2021. We got Sennheiser getting sold, TCLXL TV, some exciting stuff going on with Sonos and Roku, and oh my goodness, so many beautiful viewer questions. All that and more coming up on AVXL. Hey, don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to every single one of you that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly donations make the show possible. They cover our expenses, and they make life a little easier during trying times. Thank you. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear. No matter what your budget is, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I'm semi-excited. I ordered a very inexpensive Texas Instruments-based amplifier. It's like a $65 amplifier. Cool. It's even less than it sells for at Amazon. USPS says it was delivered. So I'm like, Robert, hold on a minute. I, I got to go. I run upstairs. It's not there. I hate that feeling. A whole bunch of stuff for other members of the family on the porch. Mail in the mailbox. The box I'm looking for, nada, nothing. Disturbing. So annoying. I too am searching for a missing package currently. It was shipped. It uh oh arrived at the correct address, and I went to go look for it, and it was not there. I'm hoping it turns up. You know, I figure if somebody was stealing the little tiny amp in the strange plain brown wrapper, they would have grabbed all the other stuff off the porch. But maybe not. Maybe it was labeled audio equipment. Steal me first. <laughs> exactly. I'm not suspecting theft at this point. It's just somebody put it somewhere. Yeah. There's a crew looking for it right now. Had a couple of RMA hard drives and I took advantage of the five-year warranty. The folks at TSX had to send me the Onyx twice because apparently the first time it was refused, which made me wonder <laughs> whose door did they knock on? Because nobody in my house refused a package. Hey, now. We just don't do that here. Oh, goodness. At Kiddo1986 tweeted, Oh, I hope nothing comes bad from this. Bigger corporation takes over, rarely changes good companies for the better. Kiddo1986 was talking about Sennheiser's consumer audio division being sold to a holding company. If you didn't know, Sennheiser is a family-owned company. They uh, have a very large professional audio division. They have a consumer audio division, which is what most of the folks listening here deal with. Uh, I, oddly enough, have a couple sets of Sennheiser professional mic packs sitting on the table in front of me right now. I'm wearing a Sennheiser broadcast headset to record this very podcast. Uh, I have a personal and professional relationship with Sennheiser. So let's talk about this. Uh, they were sold to a company called Sonova. And I, when I say they, the consumer division of, uh, of Sennheiser... Sennheiser's consumer division has been having some tough times for the last few years. They laid off 650 people in 2019. You know, I'm pretty sure it was sell the division or shut it down because the headphone market is insanely competitive. And like I mentioned before, the family's keeping the pro audio divisions. So, I mean, let's talk about Sennheiser. I, I have a, a real kind of love-hate relationship with Sennheiser's product lineup, which I do for a lot of headphone manufacturers. Sennheiser back in like 2003, 2007, really set new standards for headphones. The 650, uh, the 800, the 600, which sounds a lot like the 650. These were revealing and detailed and just really raised the bar. I think I, I call the Sennheiser 800 best of show at a 2007 Can Jam in LA a thousand years ago. The 650 was kind of legendary. Later on, as the headphone community began to get weirder and weirder, people would say, well, it has a Sennheiser veil. And what the Sennheiser Veil is, 
Uh, one, it's not a veil. It's a relatively neutral audio playback. When I say neutral, I mean accurate. And they don't amplify the high end to make audiophiles excited. Sounds desirable. It is desirable. That's me. I have opinions on this stuff. The thing is, though, is Beats came out. Beats made insane amounts of money. And Sennheiser, like every other headphone manufacturer and a lot of companies that never should have manufactured headphones, saw this high margin opportunity for a fairly spendy piece of consumer electronics. Because a lot of people don't realize is that the cost of a set of headphones is significantly lower than the retail price. Uh, feel free to mock me. Uh, ask at avxl.com or tweet at Patrick Norton. There's a, a pretty huge markup on a lot of headphones. I don't think there was a huge markup on Sennheiser. Let me say that clear. Sennheiser made some really beautifully engineered and thoughtfully engineered and strong products, at least in my experience. They also, they did a lot of things. So they had the Urban lineup, which never really panned out. Their Beats competitors. They were chasing kind of lifestyle earbuds and headphone brands. Uh, the Momentum, I think, was uh, the wireless Momentum with the noise canceling was actually some of the best mics I've ever worked with on a wireless headphone. They were basically fighting with two of the largest largest audio companies on the planet, which is Bose and Sony. And then you look at like the closed back $2,400 820S, uh, which I thought were kind of a hot mess. They got a big hole in the mids. They brought bass, sub bass to the 800 series. I remember them being kind of shrill and having a really serious hole in the mids. 2017, another legendary product, the $59,000 HE1, <laughs> which is, it was a moonshot, right? It was, they're making this incredible tube powered, massive electrostatic. And I call it an experience because this thing was marble and you'd like lift the lid and the tubes would rise up and it was very extraordinary and it sounded great. But at the time they were creating this, this super expensive audio experience. People like Mr. Speakers, which we now call Dan Clark Audio, were debuting their $3,000 electrostatic headphones. Now, you had to buy an amp to go with those. So you could easily spend a couple thousand dollars more, but you're still talking, if you spent a couple thousand dollars for an amp, you're talking about, you know, an order of magnitude less. Exactly. Do you think uh, being sold to a company, a uh, holding company that also specializes in audio products, specifically more on the medical side? Right. Still, it seems like a good purchase. I wonder if this will be something similar to like what Denon and Marantz went through uh, right. when they got rolled over by into a holding company as far as the actual ownership goes. Their yeah. products still continue to impress. I am curious if something similar might happen here where maybe Sonova will give Sennheiser the focus to put products out that are perhaps a little more popular and continued focus on the high end as well. I hope so. This is a legendary brand. They've done a lot of good products. They were doing like, you know, wireless headsets for watching television and Bluetooth headsets that were competing with, you know, the stuff people wear in airplanes. And they were doing in-ears and they were trying to do trendy in-ears and they were doing this and they were doing, and they were doing gaming headsets. And it always seemed like they were sort of moving in 17 directions. So I think, yeah, if they have a thoughtful, smart company that's got some technology and some depth. But you and I have worked for companies that have been sold multiple times during our 10 years there. and Once or twice. Uh, we won't. <laughs> once or twice. Um no more than four times at one company. And, you know, and it comes with challenges. You know, Snova sounds like an interesting company. Uh, you know, they're basically getting the Sennheiser brand that gives them a big step up in moving into consumer audio. We'll find out. The Engadget article uh, calls them a hearing care company, like a $3 billion a year. Uh, I, I, you know, think of that as being uh, hearing aids, but 
And things like cochlear implants as well that they yeah. are known to specialize in. And that's one of the things that kind of gives me hope in this whole scenario is the fact that, hey, yeah. chances are Snova knows how to analyze human hearing really well. And maybe yeah. this is just like a match made in heaven. But yeah, it's kind of a so. wait and see at this point. And will this create more jobs for people who work for Sennheiser? Or is it more of a cost cutting thing where they're simply going to pump out lots of low cost products? But I can't picture that being the case. I don't know why you would buy the Sennheiser brand yeah. name and then suddenly just cheapen the whole thing Yeah, to no end. This isn't the Polaroid TV at Walmart. Maybe fewer of the $60,000 headphones, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I still love, I, I would still once in a while love to at least get a look at and a listen to a pair of $60,000 headphones, but still. We can, you know, <laughs> can jam is coming. We'll talk about that later. Look, okay. I, I will say that, they, I, you know, part of the reason I called the AT1s inexperience is because it was tactile. It was visual. There was motion. It sounded fantastic. There was just a lot going on there, which there should be for $60,000. I am just having optimistic thoughts about this whole merger. The acquisition by Sonova. I like being optimistic. I try. Here's the deal. The entire audio industry, especially at the high end, there's a lot of hand-wringing. And at the low end, there's a lot of hand-wringing. And in the middle, there's a lot of hand-wringing. At the low end, it's crazy. I just ordered in some like sub-$50 earbuds for testing. And as uh, longtime listeners may remember, the last time I did this, there's like a $20 headphone from Monoprice that sounds shockingly good. Way better than any $16, $20 headphone should sound. And I was like, okay, I'm going to buy some earbuds. And uh, I bought like five sets of earbuds. I think I had $76 invested across five sets of earbuds. And they were all atrocious. I mean, unbelievably bad. Emotionally traumatizing. The bang for the buck was not strong. <laughs> yeah. And then I also bought, there's a Panasonic in-ear that's insanely popular. You know, there's like 375,000 four and a half star reviews on Amazon. I'm exaggerating here. It was kind of like, oh, these sound great compared to the earbuds that came with your cheap phone, especially if one of the earbuds is broken and now you can hear stereo again, right? So you've got a lot of challenges. The low end, it's not impossible, but it's difficult to make a product that sounds good, that's inexpensive. At the high end, you have an entire industry that's kind of held hostage to people that are, you know, I mean, I, I'm laughing because somebody was talking about, uh, I really needed to hear this $650 Ethernet reclonker because it opened up the sound. And I'm just like, <laughs> there's a point where it's hard to tell if somebody actually believes in what they're selling or if they're completely full of fluff, right? You and I have heard $50,000 speakers where you're like, you know, if, if I had the money, I, I, I wouldn't mind owning those speakers, right? Like, you know, Magico is a brand. And I've said the same thing about $1,000 speakers too. So it yeah. really is. And, and $500 speakers. Dependent upon the company and how focused they'll be on yeah. that. And I'm just going to stick with the optimistic take for Sonova being... Yeah. A medical hearing company at this point. Maybe bringing They that. probably care. <laughs> a grounding effect. They... <laughs> and get some great yeah. products out. Take that Sennheiser name to new heights for more people. I've been having a lot of conversations recently talking about snake oil masquerading as audio and high-end audio products that have some fairly significant flaws in them that are audible. And then if you actually run test equipment against them, they're terrifying. I could go on for two some so snake oil HDR stuff I'll talk about later. <laughs> Just for comparison. <laughs> Let us turn from recovery. And we both hope everybody at Sennheiser stays employed and gets to do good work. We should say that too. Let us turn corners 
Let us turn the corner. Let us let us turn the corner to TCL and their XL TVs. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I believe, or maybe even the last episode as well, where mm-hmm. TCL is introducing 85-inch LCD televisions under this XL banner that they first announced back at CES in January. These will be 85-inch screens with HDR10, Dolby Vision support, and a variety of different series, starting with their 4-series XL. The 85S435 has already appeared at Best Buy, according to a CNET report I read yesterday. If this TV for $1,600 for an 85-inch 4-series model, if it can at least provide a decent quantum dot color response, as well as 500 nits of light output, that price is super tempting for a lot of people looking for just a super-sized screen that isn't a projector. Now, TCL also has a 7 Series XL that's already seeing initial reviews, the 85R745, $3,000 MSRP, and that should start shipping in the next couple of weeks, according to a response to the CNET article that was posted. The 7 Series XL will definitely have quantum dot backlighting system for sure. It will be a 120 hertz panel, and some of the initial benchmark measurements I've seen on this TV, uh, courtesy of Caleb Dennison at Digital Trends, Caleb showed peak brightness for HDR over 2,000 nits. It was nice to see those kind of numbers. I will be really curious to see retail shipping units in the hands of testers as well. That's something I haven't seen yet. It looks like all of the reviews currently out or the first looks are all done with TVs handed to them by TCL. Also, TCL has announced upcoming will be their 8K XL model that will use the company's latest mini LED backlighting system, likely with tens of thousands of mini LEDs behind that. Going quickly back to that 4 Series at just the price point of $1,600 for an 85-inch screen, the big thing's just simply going to be the brightness. Is it bright enough to be called an HDR TV? (laughs) It better be at least 500 nits in HDR. Otherwise, I have a hard time calling something like that HDR. HDR. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm still kind of like stunned at the $1,600 for an 85-inch screen. That's a giant box. We've been watching the race to the bottom for, you know, well over a decade now. and That's a pretty huge jump. TCL historically has kept their 4 Series as a pretty value-oriented panel that doesn't have all the latest and greatest performance features that you would find on more expensive TVs. But like you said, yeah, that's a hard price to ignore, especially if that's the MSRP. And given when it goes on sale, it'll probably be even a little less. Just something kind of cool. It is on sale right now at Best Buy. Yep. For $1,599.99. That is nice. I know people who either appreciate or want or desire just a large screen. It really comes down to what the picture quality is going to be on that. And that's where I'm waiting to see some, uh, some qualified reviewers put that under the gun and see how it works. Under display, it lists the clear motion index, the panel resolution, the resolution, the display colors, and the high dynamic range formats of HDR10 and HLG, and not a single thing about brightness or contrast. It may also lack Dolby Vision support. Yeah. HDR10 and HLG. Yeah. It's a 4 series. Yes, exactly. So that's why I'm more interested in the 7 series that bumps up the performance. And if the 4 series doesn't include Dolby Vision, that's how they're getting that $1,600 price. Eliminate a few formats, make the licensing costs a little less. (laughs) There you go. I will say that they don't list the brightness on the 85-inch class uh, 4 series. The QLED Dolby Vision HDR Smart TV. 
Yeah. So. I, at this point, I'm not 100% certain of if the 4 Series will have Quantum Dot, and let alone nobody has tested that publicly as far as I've right. seen. I'm going to go do some hunting today and see if I can find anyone who's tested that in any way, shape, or form compared to something like the clearly more impressive visually 7 Series. Double the price. <laughs> I'm really actually curious also to see what the mini LED backlight system measures out at on that new 8K model. 8K, I could care less about. Mini LEDs, though. True that. I know a lot of people who could use an 85-inch screen, and if it can come even close to giving you some of the performance of an OLED at what would be significantly more money if you're talking an 83-inch screen size with something like Mm -hmm. LG's C1, well, there you go. I can't wait. There you have it. Because it's also a Roku-powered TV, and that's something I always kind of appreciate. I do like that. Although, I'll give credit where credit's due. Samsung and their Tizen platform is generally pretty damn good, too, as far as LCDs go. It tends to be among the least offensive. Inoffensive. <laughs> or least it's offensive? Nice yeah, when I they just work, defensive. too. Yeah. It just works and it's maintained. Speaking of which, uh, Sonos got a software update. Uh, they added a setting on the Arc soundbars so you can adjust the level of the height audio channels. I would like to point out that this is a volume adjustment, not an actual height adjustment, but that's a tweak that a lot of people will be excited about. The amp, the arc, and the beam now support WPA3 security and can connect 2.4 gigahertz 802.11n Wi-Fi networks. I laugh because I have a device I'm testing right now that will not attach to anything other than a 2.4 gigahertz 802.11 network and only if the 5 gigahertz uh, network with the SSID of the same name is turned off. Not that I'm bitter about that. Oh, what a pain in the ass. It is, actually. <laughs> and the port now supports uh, dual mono audio outputs. And I will quote Sonos, dual mono is ideal when speaker placement is not suitable for stereo listening, e.g. open spaces or outdoor configurations. Cool. So, yeah, it's kind of useful. If you're doing the whole distributing 3,000 channels of audio throughout your house. I updated my phone with the latest Sonos software, and I will have to check out that volume adjustment feature for the Arc. It's a good thing. I'm more tempted just to grab an iPhone I have or an Apple product and simply run through their setup for calibrating a Sonos speaker within the room. That will already take care of that volume adjustment if you don't want to mess with it manually. I'll go both ways and see which way. Pleases me more. Goodness. <laughs> that reminds me, uh, we were talking about uh, a challenge that uh, someone had about distributing football throughout their house without anybody being able to sort of creep ahead and game the teasers. Well, they didn't mention gaming teasers. I'm flashing back to my father's football betting. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I digress. Nathan emailed acidavxl.com and he said, I heard a question you guys got about football being spoiled because TVs in the same house would be out of sync. My thought is that this is probably a football party environment where people maybe aren't sitting and watching with their full attention but are casually watching the game. What myself and some of my friends do is use Sonos to feed one TV's audio throughout the home, preferably originating from the main TV using a Sonos play bar. That's one way to do it. It's a good idea. Your visuals won't be in sync, (laughs) but the audio at least will be. Yeah, but at least you can, like, hear it. That's true. True. Funny thing I do uh, frequently is when I'm listening to Over the Air and I know we're watching the same thing in the house and somebody's using the uh, local cable setup we have here. Right. I'm always hearing it first, and then all of a sudden I'll hear the screams or the groans coming from the other rooms, <laughs> like five to ten seconds later, depending on lag. It's the weirdest feeling. 
I forgot this last week, my apologies, uh, Roku uh, AirPlay 2 and a $40 4K HDR streamer. So uh, Roku Ultra gets uh, AirPlay 2 uh, HDR10 Plus support, uh, which gives you that fantabulous dynamic metadata. They're talking about uh, better visual search results for Roku Voice. So, you know, when you start a voice search on a streaming channel, trying to find something. They're trying to give you basically Roku search results that are more compelling, that don't disrupt your viewing experience. Haven't had a chance to test that out yet. The other thing that's kind of fascinating is the Roku Express 4K Plus. They've got a new uh, Roku Voice Remote Pro. And as somebody who bought an inexpensive Roku streaming stick bundled with a voice remote so they could throw out the streaming stick to get a remote, it's always nice when they offer these separately. The Roku Express 4K gives you 4K HDR and HDR10 Plus for under 40 bucks, which is uh, always nice. I'm sure there's a uh, Amazon product out there, Amazon Fire product out there that I'm ignoring, and feel free to email ask at avxl.com to mock me for my lack of interest in Amazon's streaming devices. <laughs> I often avoid sticks because you generally don't get yeah. the best performance in a product lineup compared to something a little larger, say like the Roku Ultra with a separate power supply. Right. It is nice to have those sticks around, especially for projector use, where you can literally plug yeah. one in. Generally, the projectors will have a USB port that you can power the damn thing off of, so it makes it very convenient to add that to a projector. HDR10+, Plus, there is some content out there, and it is an open standard. Yeah. Dolby Vision would be more useful, especially yeah. for those of us who have a foot in the Apple environment. I stream a lot of Dolby Vision with my Roku Ultra. Yeah. I definitely do. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, rechargeable battery inside the Roku Voice Remote Pro, uh, which if you've been shuffling batteries in and out of remotes is always an attraction. Quote, hands-free voice for easy actions, such as, hey, Roku, find my remote. <laughs> yep. That is a useful feature. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, $29.99, shipping now, compatible with all Roku TV models, audio devices, and select streaming players. The other thing I forgot uh, when we were talking last week was uh, to wish everyone a happy May the 4th. Oh, comma, yeah. Be with you. Variety had a link to the 1977 review of Star Wars. We've talked about this to death, comma, horse beating, so I won't get into it right now. But if you've never seen the Despecialized Editions, just search for Star Wars Despecialized Edition, and I'll I'll leave it at that. I just rewatched, I think because of May the 4th, oh, I can't think of the two famous movie reviewers from long, long ago. Uh, Cisco and Ebert. Yep, there we go. That was fun to rewatch their take on it, what they really nailed and what was sort of like, eh, they just didn't get it at the time. <laughs> if you can catch that, I believe it's posted on YouTube or probably many places, but it was kind of classic and I, I did appreciate it. And yeah, you're 100% right. If you are a fan and you haven't taken a look at the quote unquote despecialized edition, that's one of my absolute mm -hmm. favorites. That's the thing that will get you the closest to the original theater experience as it yeah. was in 1977 when that movie released it's nice give to you see a hint, that the right person shoots first yeah and it looks right too <laughs> it's just it's less tampered with compared to the modern versions i have and i have all of them i think especially the 4k and the blu-ray and the <laughs> everything whatever the highest quality is i can get of those movies i generally buy it over and over again yeah <laughs> there's a despecialized edition that has there's the grain and the grain free version <laughs> I'll just leave that there. Hey, in case you don't want to mess with your TV settings for noise reduction. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fascinating. 
You got a question from Marani asking about why their TCL 5 series has disappointing brightness for a 4K HDR TV. Will calibration or tweaking adjustments help? This person emailed me asking why their 5 series didn't seem to have the brightness for doing HDR playback. And they were inquiring if something like a calibration service or maybe a test disc or some settings within that TV could really help. When I went and looked at the reviews for the TCL5 series, you'll see that generally that TV will not break 500 nits of light output. And you compare that to say a OLED screen that easily hits well over 700, let alone there are a lot of LCDs out there that'll do a thousand. And we just talked about one apparently that will do 2000 nits. And there are quite a few of those TVs out there nowadays. That level of, say, a thousand nits for an LCD television is kind of the minimum spec, really, for what we would consider an HDR viewing experience. And even though the TV on the box is HDR, it is literally just saying that it's HDR compatible. The thing to really pay attention to is what is the max light output? And that is probably not easily accessible information while standing in a store or looking at a box. It's not going to have that information on there. And that's where I would highly suggest if you can, before you shop, take a look at a review where they've gone over what is the light output of this TV and why we often recommend something like their six series over the five series. Right. Budget permitting is the fact that the six series can hit a thousand nits. And that peak brightness and that detail that it brings is arguably what you're buying a TV like that for. When you do go for a more value brand or a more value model within a particular brand, realize that, yeah, brightness is one of the first things that gets sacrificed in terms of absolute light output. It would be kind of nice to have a mandatory something like a VESA spec for HDR for televisions. So right on the <laughs> box, you could say, oh, this is spec'd at 400 nits, even though it's labeled as an HDR TV. And oh, right. this TV that costs you know, X percent more actually delivers well over a thousand. It would make it easier, I think, for most shoppers out there. Be aware if you're going for the absolute value, chances are the first thing you're going to sacrifice is the absolute light output of that TV, in addition to things like color quality and HDR format support and a few other things too. But yeah, it's a bummer. There is no specific setting that will suddenly make a TV that only does sub 500 nit light output suddenly do more and going in and changing a bunch of settings, especially with HDR playback can right. often make the picture look worse. If you're not careful, Awkward. stick with those picture presets, stick with the ones that look best to your eye for a given room lighting environment. And at the very least check the backlighting setup too, to make sure it's cranked all right. the way up, <laughs> no matter what preset you're using, if you need that extra light output. A couple of years ago, I looked at one of the first VESA desktop monitors or VESA rated desktop monitors. And what kind of blew my mind was realizing that this monitor, which wasn't particularly bright by the VESA standards and certainly not bright by the ideal HDR standards, was still as bright as almost every 1080p TV that had come out the year before, except for a very select number of models. So it's frustrating, especially if you're in a bright room when you're trying to get that feel, that uh, additional uh, contrast. You can often see the most value brands simply don't have the punch compared to the more expensive models out there. There you have it. Cliff tweeted, I have a pair of definitive technology towers with built-in 10-inch powered subwoofers. Am I missing anything by not having a dedicated subwoofer like a 12-inch from SVS or Sue? One, I love this question. Two, TLDR, yes and no. Those are most likely Definitive Tech's 9060s. They probably sound fantastic. They're a bipolar speaker. They've got those built-in subwoofers. The bass is pretty solid down to a 35 hertz, give or take, and then it kind of drops off. 
So I've got a big conversation that I recorded with Brent Butterworth, a friend of ours, uh, who's probably tested more subs than anyone alive, except for maybe Gene Dallasala over at Audioholics. We talk about CEA 2010 and subwoofers and measuring and positioning and multiple subs and all sorts of good stuff and, and audio measurements. And we're going to parse that out into a, a couple, three or four sections. Some we're going to put in the main show. Some's going to be for our patrons. I have a set of Golden Ear Triton 2 Pluses, which have built-in subwoofers. And, and they kind of, they're pretty solid down to around 30 hertz. Music, most instruments, uh, you're covered. You've got everything there pretty much down to, you know, that lowest note on a B-flat tuba or that rarely hit E on the far left side of a grand piano. If you want more sub-bass impact, if you're listening to EDM, if you're listening to house music, if you're listening to rap, if you're into rock and roll and you like to feel the kick drum in your chest, or more likely if you're uh, you know, watching movies and you want to feel the impact as the car rolls down the cliff, you know, yes, going with uh, one of SVS's subwoofers or Sue Researches or a Monoprice Monolith subwoofer would work wonders for you because it's going to move more air. The thing is, is you know, I mentioned uh, my Golden Ear speakers, right, with the, the towers of the subs built. In. The problem is, and this is something Brent talks about, is the perfect stereo location for that left and right speaker is almost never the ideal spot to place the subwoofer. Right. You can also be in a situation where you create a standing wave or there's a hole uh, in your base that happens to be because of where those subwoofers are positioned uh, on the speaker in the room. So again, um, if you find the base from the built-in subwoofers lacking, or if you just want more, a well-located sub or, or multiple subwoofers helps a lot. We'll talk about that more uh, in the near future with somebody who's spent a lot of time playing with single and multiple and subwoofer tuning. It would be nice if there was more sort of room tuning technology that was included in uh, stereo reproduction equipment. That's a statement I am still becoming comfortable with myself. <laughs> Understood. Because <laughs> I'm always about like, you know, really, really good speakers and then tune the room. And then uh, it's kind of amazing what some of the processing software can do in terms of compensating with the weirdness of the room you put your speakers in, right? Because you buy speakers, they're going to be different sounding depending on where you position them in the room. And they're going to sound different in different rooms. And that's a that gets deep really fast. Cool. I will stop oh. right there for the moment. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. Mike's looking for a backyard projector setup. He has his eye on a projector with a high lumen rating. And uh, Rob noticed he seemed kind of focused on that aspect, which I can understand. I was thinking I, literally almost the same thought myself. I want to do some backyard movies with the neighbors. You know, it's summer and it's light pretty late. I'm like, what I really need is a light cannon of a projector. <laughs> I want to stretch the sheet out for the screen and it to be smoking from the intensity of my LEDs, my lumens. Me too. <laughs> but it's just not practical. <laughs> That's really my takeaway for this question from Mike. It was, I was trying to temper right. his expectations. Doing projection during the daytime, outdoor projection, it is not practical. <laughs> you right. either need to go to extremes or it's going to be a compromise in some way. Either you're going to spend a lot of money to get it done or you could simply take advantage of the fact that things will generally improve with your outdoor projector setup in that transition between the late afternoon right. and the evening. When the sun goes down, that picture comes alive and given an appropriate screen and appropriate right. size and distance, you can make a great outdoor setup in general, no matter what projector you select. And I wouldn't be focused on the ones with the highest lumen ratings either. 
sometimes those will offer significantly less color quality and picture quality compared to a more focused projector for not necessarily home theater use, but even something in the value range. I've seen many high lumen projectors where they were more for business aspects, where you're not mm -hmm. expected to be doing color corrected video, looking just right, even in an outdoor environment. These were really made to just be light cannons for things like PowerPoint presentations and things like that. Right. That's where they were optimized for. So a couple of tips, though, if you are considering this one, go with a smaller screen if possible and get that projector as close as possible. Those two things will help make the picture as bright as possible, given your setup. There are screen materials out there that offer more reflectivity. They call those higher gain screens. If something like a 1.3 gain or higher is available, I, I wouldn't go too crazy with that. You don't want something that's acting like a freaking aluminum or aluminized mirror firing light back <laughs> at you. But those can go Gets a long way toward uh, making it look adequate in when there is some... Right some sunlight left in the sky. For screen positioning, this person, unfortunately, wanted to place it so that they were looking east at the screen. And I'm like, well, your sun is going down and it's gonna be firing right at the screen itself, washing screen. it out. Don't have the screen, the surface you're actually watching, face the sun, if at all possible, especially the setting sun. I just want to say, do not pick a fight with the sun. Yes. You never win when you pick a fight with the sun. Once you get past those points, then get into the projector selection. And right. I'm a big fan of low-cost 1080p projectors for outdoor use. Generally, it's not as critical to have all the resolution in the world. There are plenty of great options out there, all of them effectively throwing out about the same amount of light. If you can use a preset during your outdoor challenging moments, like before the sun is completely down, or there is still some light there, don't go with that calibrated preset built into the projector. Go with something like a standard where they are trying to optimize the picture with more light and more color for a situation where there is some light to deal with. I've also dealt with just simply having the projecting screen underneath some sort of an awning or in a shaded area, even though there's still plenty of light, it's still not super practical until the sun is really getting close to setting, but it does help quite a bit. And especially if you have that projector maybe nearby or the screen itself nearby other lighting for outdoor use where you don't want the whole backyard plunged into darkness just to watch the screen. You still have to deal with some of that. Depending where you are in the country, when you light up that screen, it will become a bug light. <laughs> oh, I didn't <laughs> that even is think visible. Of that. I thinking of a particular experience. So here's a question. So, you know, we, we talked about the the sale that was going on in uh, Ep Epson's Epic Vision uh, Ultra. It's a short throw projector. It's like 4,000 ANSI lumens, um, Optoma Cinema X Pro. I mean, these are not inexpensive projectors. These are at $3,500, $4,000 range. There's laser projectors. But you're also talking about projectors that can hit like three, 4,000 lumens. True that. I also want to point out there's some pretty hysterical, like, you know, sort of listicle based websites that are like, well, if you want to use a 20 by 10 screen outside in the daylight, you'll need at least 4,000 lumens. And it's like, you've been playing with a calculator and don't actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> Truly. Because <laughs> that's a really big screen. <laughs> the larger you're going, or if you have to use the zoom on the projector lens to put that right. projector further away from the screen than it otherwise could be, those are two things that are going to reduce the actual light hitting that yeah. screen altogether for anybody a smaller screen and having that projector as close as possible are your two best first steps i use a portable screen that's 80 inches 
when it's uh, fully extended to a 16 by nine. And I use that with a, a simple table and I'm able to place those things very easily and break them down rather easily as well. And I'm looking to actually pick up something like a, a four or $500 1080p projector with a, a standard 300 watt lamp system built into it. And I will guarantee you that's going to make for a very enjoyable viewing experience, especially once you get to actual sundown, even before the it's completely dark outside, it's still going to look really good and it will grab yeah. the eyeballs and it will make a great secondary display for a variety of activities, be it, you know, sports or movies or gaming. It's something everyone I think should have in their bag of tricks, especially if you have the room in the backyard or just an area to set up a projector like that. It's an awfully nice thing to have around for entertainment purposes. It's kind of crazy how many like over 3000 lumen projectors are now around for well under $2,000. Most of those lumen ratings are literally with the thing in its worst looking picture mode. So once. No, no, don't break my spirit. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying you're right. You're right. For any scenario, though, with some lighting, you. You're right. not using the movie mode, so that generally will have like the best black levels idealized for a very light-controlled environment. This is more, I don't want to put it in the vivid mode where everything looks greenish or sickly, but at the same point, I am going to be pushing that projector pretty hard, and it needs adequate cooling in addition to <laughs> just having a little extra color. I am curious to see if something like one of these new low-cost HDR projectors that can cover at least the P3 color palette would be even better than something that couldn't in terms of being able to provide a, a better-looking picture, especially when there is a little bit of light left in the sky and affecting the picture quality of what's being seen on the screen. It's all good, but, yep, closer is better. Smaller screens are better. <laughs> you keep it out of the sun if at all possible, and enjoy. It's great once it's set up and you've gone through the yeah. the initial testing and finding your ideal sweet spot. But yeah, don't go crazy yeah. trying to find, you know, the ultimate light cannon. I would be curious to see how many $500 projectors would it take stacked <laughs> to do something that could actually be used in sunlight. I wouldn't even try. That's fighting with the sun is not a winning battle. I'm just I'm torn between like having had to stack lights in a studio and then imagining having to sync all of those projectors so that all of the images were perfectly aligned. And then that guy with his paps bumping into the stack, <laughs> you know, and going back to something like that TCL XL, that four series, right. if that has the light output at sixteen hundred dollars, there is an 85 inch screen you could put outside. <laughs> True. That would probably outperform most projectors, uh, without a doubt. I anyway. And a couple of good stereo speakers. If there's one reason I truly love inexpensive LCDs, it's for just putting one outside <laughs> and not worrying about it too much. I want to give a shout out Projector Central, uh, which is one of the websites we love. They're having their second annual Projection Expo. Uh, this is for 2021, uh, June 15th through 17th. Ooh. So apparently they're going to have panels. They're going to talk about new products. I have never heard of this before, so I'm registered for it. Uh, I'm very, 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 very curious to see what they have. Anybody who's got digital projection going on is always a plus. Digital projection, I'm talking about a company that makes uh, $400,000 projectors, which always blow our minds at Cedia. They make such pretty light. 
I just couldn't resist this because, uh, unfortunately, you won't be able to see Robert's face when I read this, but I will. And this is entirely for my selfish needs. At Kenpo B10 tweeted, eight years later, Panasonic VT60, ZT60, and Samsung PNF64 F8500 plasma TV owners still don't have a TV option good enough to justify an upgrade to 4K. OLED is stagnated. Will micro LED be the answer? And then there's a thinking face emoji. I don't agree with anything there, other than the fact that the TVs he listed are still considered some of the very best as far as plasmas go. But there are no 4K plasmas, number one. None of them support right. HDR. For a lot of content, though, it would still look damn good, just simply because of the black level that a Panasonic TV right. or Samsung's the last and best plasma they ever made, which arguably was one of their brightest, too. I think it was the brightest plasma, that F8500. I had right. one of those, and I gave it to my brother, and he absolutely loves that thing. Uh, although I did manage to put a couple of minor, minor cases of burn-in on the screen. But think about like what OLED can do nowadays. And granted, the price yeah. is a lot more expensive when you get up to, say, 77 or 83 inches nowadays. Right. That's a significant investment. But the brightness more than triples what a plasma can do. Yeah. And the color palette is well beyond what a plasma can do. And if you really want to make your OLED look like a plasma in terms of that image performance, I right. found that enabling something like the black frame insertion mode on my OLED appropriately set up. And if the flicker doesn't bother you, reminds me exactly of how my Panasonic and other plasmas used to look. I am never going to disparage anybody still rolling with a plasma of any kind. They still right. look great. I still calibrate them. I still appreciate that image quality. Yeah. Several of my friends still have them and they're fantastic. They're also heavy as crap. If, if I remember properly. And I remember and they suck down a lot of juice. They're space eaters. That's the other big one. It was great for warming up a room in the wintertime. I'll tell you that. And I think I remember that one time we, I think we had a VT60 in a oh. studio and it flipped off that table and oh, that was a bad day. But anyway. The leg was broken. <laughs> that was an expensive day. Micro LED? Maybe. You know, when you look at a television like the Pioneer Kuro, which is, I was kind of shocked you didn't have it on this list. You know, it set new standards for black and it literally took the slow dragging evolution of, of OLED to finally, you know, in the last couple of years, OLEDs are like hitting that level of black. A lot of plasma enthusiasts, especially ones that don't like the Kuro, go nuts because they don't like the motion artifacts that are part and parcel of the OLED experience as far as they're concerned. I agree. But yeah, for me, it was just like, man, the color gamut's larger. Uh, HDR is fascinating. You know, Dolby Vision's fascinating. There's just a lot of stuff going on. You know, for 1080p content, for 1080p Blu-rays, for sports, I get it. I think OLEDs, I don't think they've stagnated so much as they hit this huge level and there's not a lot of room to go, you know. At least with the current technologies. Yeah, everyone's yeah. working on new stuff. We're still waiting on All Samsung's updated OLED tech for their eventual return. Within the next two years, we'll also have this new inkjet printing technology that is being used to create the OLED screens. And the benefits there could be that we'll finally switch over to pure RGB OLEDs rather than the white OLED materials that are currently used in just about every OLED you look at today that are run through then a color filter to create the pixels and the colors we see. Going to this inkjet printing method will make it more of a commodity product that everyone can enjoy at right. good prices, but even increasing things like color purity and the advancement of quantum dot filtering systems. Yeah, There's a lot out there and it takes time for this stuff to mature into something that can be deployed at scale, so to speak. 
It's also worth pointing out that to amplify that, it's like these were $3,3500 televisions eight or 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. And that was for like a 55 or 60 inch television. That F8500 is probably the most expensive plasma you could buy because it offered right. something few other plasmas can do in terms of its absolute light output. <laughs> if you want a funny read, it was why didn't the F8500 ever get the Energy Star rating? And I went and asked Samsung that one time and they just started laughing at me. It's like, dude, you see how bright that thing is? <laughs> <laughs> like, we're not we're not aiming for energy star anything <laughs> yeah that's our final I mean, hurrah it, and that's the other thing too you can't buy these tvs anymore and if they break right. you can't oh you're gonna pay money to get them fixed and i'm i fixing I, them will be a non-trivial endeavor you know it will be expensive and difficult to find that it'll be easier to find another one that somebody else has been using and they also you know the 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 black levels they gray out over time like i think it was i can't remember if it was Pioneer or Panasonic who pointed out that they were a little aggressive with their phosphor degrading compensation curve where the light got brighter over time to make up for, you know, phosphor decay. Um, it's true that. But if you really do appreciate the way motion is handled on a plasma, arguably one of the best. It goes back to almost looking yeah. like how CRTs did it. That is something I think OLED can get way better at. And it's still, by default at least, it's not there yet. That black frame insertion technology I talked about typically is associated with flicker artifacts that people just cannot stand. But one quick tip I'll throw out is that on my TV, at least, when I do enable black frame insertion, and if I turn up the OLED backlight level to maximum, it helps minimize that a little bit. And it really does improve the clarity of the content I look at. You could enable motion compensation and estimation for its processing of video to introduce a little bit of smoothing in a sense to make those pictures look clear but the black frame insertion setting as flawed as it can be is really the thing that i enabled it and i have not disabled it on my oled yet i haven't found a scenario at least in darkroom viewing because even enabling that function cuts the light output by about half on an oled but for darkroom viewing it's absolutely great and i am not using black frame insertion for hdr content of course because you need all of the light <laughs> you can when you're displaying that beautiful content all right okay this was quality stirring up kenpo so thank you for that lg's 10 uh their x series oleds are still on sale yeah this is a good thing <laughs> Even if they aren't plasmas. <laughs> I keep looking at the new one series that are out now, like the C1, the G1, and soon to be probably the B1 and the A1. Right. Or I don't know if there is a B series this year. I have to double check that. Anyway, if you are not satisfied at the still MSRP pricing of the one series that is out now, keep in mind that 10 series from last year is still available and the prices are still on sale. So they haven't run out of stock yet. And if you're looking for that Black Friday pricing on an OLED screen with great performance and arguably the difference between the 10 series and the new one series isn't terribly great. I mean, it's always best to buy the new if you can, but given how good these sale prices are still, and if you can't wait for the new series to go on sale, yeah, take a look at some of the 10 series panels. In particular, I was looking at the C10 in the 55 and 65 inch screen sizes. Yeah, it's as tempting as it can be in terms of uh, pricing. We're here to tempt. Mm-hmm. 
Looks like Zack Snyder's Justice League 4K UHD Blu-ray, which will probably buy the before by three. Well, actually, 133 to one. Uh, that rumor has it might be arriving as early as May 26. As soon as I find the Australian article that that discussed that, I will bring more into this conversation. Also, if you're curious, email askdavidxl.com. Uh, I got a couple links that talk about why Zack Snyder intentionally shot the movie in the format it showed up on it uh, on HBO Max. Cool. I should also point out that because I have a 100-inch screen, I did not find it nearly as annoying as so many people out there who have like 55-inch screens did, because I had a giant wall of shiny pixels in front of me uh, rather than you know three feet. Uh, or a third of my monitor, give or take. So, very cool. Trade shows are coming back. Uh, we're vaccinated, so uh, we might even be ready to hang out if you're going to be at one of these uh, fall events. CD Expo is going to be September 1st through the 3rd in Indianapolis, 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 Indiana. <laughs> Indianapolis Indy, Square in Indiana. Uh, that's uh, for the trade only, but a lot of you out there are in the trade, so let us know if you're going to be there. CanJam SoCal, that's going to be Saturday the 25th, Sunday the 26th at the Irvine Marriott in Orange County, California. Everyone is a welcome to those events. They are inexpensive. It is an amazing way to hear all of the headphones you've ever wanted to hear. I'm not saying everybody's going to be there, but, you know, if you've heard us talk about Dan Clark, formerly Mr. Speakers, Odyssey, Sennheiser, I could go on and on and on for quite some time. But if you want to hear lots and lots of headphones, that is a fantastic, and earbuds, that is a fantastic way to do it. Rocky Mountain Audio Fest is going to be back October 8th through 10th in Denver, Colorado. Also a uh, event where everyone is welcome. And that is a great way to hear a lot of speakers, a lot of legendary brands. I have literally walked into a room at that place and realized that the contents of the room were worth more than my house, at least at retail from the dealer. <laughs> ah! I also have a lot of love for Rocky Mountain Audio Fest because they're trying to do things like, hey, here's a two, three, four hundred $400 rig you can put together and improve on your audio experience without breaking the bank, which is great because it's a much cooler thing than someone telling me, well, you know, we've got a fantastic entry-level lineup. Uh, you know, the millennials love this. And, you know, and you can get into our brand for just $13,000. Understood. <laughs> and meet trying so desperately not to you know spit take in the guy's face as i was laughing oh yeah yeah 13 grand yeah don't worry that's entry level i'm excited that in any case display week 2021 starts up this sunday Mm -hmm. and it runs through friday may 21st this is more of a trade show for the manufacturers but there are also lots of presentations in their call for papers and Anything related to just about any kind of lighting or display technology is going to be shown off, often with prototype devices that are showing you what will be coming up in the next few years or what people are thinking of and, you know, literally throwing at the wall and seeing what sticks. And it's one of my favorite compact shows with very, very detailed information and from a variety of sources too. There's also a section where you often have either individuals or organizations, including schools, showing off maybe something they're working on. Leading edge. Yeah. Pie in the sky. Totally. And it's just technology. There's a little bit of everything and it's going to be virtual. So it's going to be easy to hit up and do. And I'm all scheduled for that. And I'll do some reporting on that for next week as well. Nice. Yeah. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, do us a favor. If you got a question, you got a comment, you got uh, a, a band you want us to check out, a movie you think we should see, tweet at Robert Heron or at Patrick Norton or at AVXL. 
pound Ask AVXL. If you got a question, you want to help get our attention, we appreciate that. Or just email ask at AVXL.com. Or if you're a patron at patreon.com slash AVXL, post, message us. We will contact you hopefully within 24 hours, if not sooner. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, beautiful people who listen, beautiful people who support us on Patreon, thank you so much. Yes. I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.